If you guys could open up your Bible to Psalm 103, it's on page 485, while I get myself settled as well. Okay, so here's what I'll do. I'll read uh, Psalm 103 in its entirety, and then I'll read verses 6 to 14, and then I'll read verse 8, which is my main text. I just figure, instead of just reading one verse, might as well give the context uh, some light. Psalm 103 of David. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you, who, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. One more time. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Please pray with me. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of your possession? You will not be angry forever because you delight in mercy. You will have compassion on us. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. You will keep your promise that you swore to Jacob, our father, and Abraham, the pledge which you made to our ancestors. There is no other God like you. And God, we come here now in this service, this consecrated time, as eternal souls making our way to you. 
and we want to praise you like David. We want to praise you like David, Lord, because he had a gospel sight, because he saw Jesus Christ, and he rejoiced in the reality of who you are, Yahweh. The Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Lord God, be with my speech. Give me boldness, holy boldness to speak the oracles of God and help these people as they hear to not merely understand, but to indeed know the Lord in heart, in mind, in soul, that we would say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy, holy name. Amen. People, one of the great difficulties we have anytime we approach the scriptures is that in some senses we are overly familiar with the Bible. And what ends up happening when we get to this weird place of overfamiliarity is we start to regard the things of the Bible as commonplace when indeed they're actually very strange and unusual. The threats of the Bible are strange. The consequences when people don't regard God to be the holy God that he is, like Uzzah, who touched the ark even though it was stumbling, that's strange. Jesus Christ rising from the dead, that's strange. But also, praising God is strange. When David says in that verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, or NIV, praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, that's strange. And it's strange particularly because when you look at the world, the world doesn't do that at all. At all. At all. A recent artist, multi-platinum artist, came out with a song. It is, it is, it is incredibly famous. And a part of the lyrics of this song is this. Catch, this, catch these lines. The, the, the songstress says, you are not a speck in the universe You're not just some words in a Bible verse. You are the living word. Now, when that gets said and that gets put out and everybody hears those words, they don't realize how disrespectful that is to God. That's normal, though. That's commonplace for the world. But this verse is even strange for us as Christians because we know full and well what it is sometimes to not praise God from our inmost being. We know full and well sometimes when Carl is singing with all fervor and passion how we are reluctant to raise our hands even though we want to, so we settle for a a small tap on the bench in front of us. You see, I myself am guilty. So there should be no debate about this, that what David is experiencing here in this psalm is very different. He's praising God with all of his inmost being. But what's even more incredible, guys, is this fact. What he's doing is what is commanded of every eternal soul. For Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 says, the first commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. What David's doing here is what we're all supposed to do, and we all have a very hard time doing it. So the question becomes, David, what did you see? that helped you give God the glory and the praise that he's due. David, you tell me so that I can do and give my God the reverence and honor and praise and love that he's due. David, what do you know? What do you see about God that I don't see that keeps my praise back? 
That's a real question to ask, and so that's the first question. The first question on my road to trying to prove to you guys this. Here's my main proposition through Psalm 103, verse 8. When I read Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. I see a verse that declares that God is love. And I see a psalm that declares this, that the only people who are privileged to know the height, depth, breadth, and length of this love are his children. I'll say it one more time. The verse tells me that God of this love are his children. So to the first question, David, what did you see? Now, I'm about to commit scripture, uh, sermon suicide. Sermon suicide is when the pastor gets in front of you and he leads you through a bunch of verses and he makes you turn to everyone. And you're like, come on, just put it on the slide. You see what I'm saying? Now, this could be easy sermon suicide. I refuse to believe it's so with GRC, and I'm convinced that if we can get to these verses together, it will warm your heart the way it did mine. So do me a favor. Everybody find that book, Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible. We're going to go there quick, quick. And we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is on page 154. Now, David, what did you see that moved your heart so to praise God from your inmost being and to declare a God who the world hates and aligns as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love? David, what did you see? What we often don't remember is in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses talks about kings that are to come. And this is what he says, verse 14, to the people of Israel. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, then he continues to give all these bunch of stipulations as to what the king is not supposed to do. But if you jump down to verse 18, read with me what the king is supposed to do. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord God, the Lord his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. The king is supposed to do a couple things. He's supposed to not do four things, but the positive of what he's supposed to do is this. He's supposed to copy down the law himself in front of the Levitical priests so they can check for accuracy. He's supposed to keep it with him all his days, and he's supposed to study it for the express purpose that he would fear God. This is not a normal thing in that time of the world. Usually the king was sovereign over all. He did not submit himself to any written decrees whatsoever. But the first job of the king after his inauguration was what? Write down God's word and submit yourself to it completely so that you can learn how to fear God. So when David is doing this, when he's writing this down, what does he come across? Flip with me. Let's go back. Book of Exodus, chapter 34. If you're, if you're going from the front of your Bible, you're going to go Genesis, Exodus. You're going backwards, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus. Exodus chapter 34. 
Now, David had to write the whole law, first five books of the Bible. So what do you think he came across? He inevitably had to pass this. Look with me, verse 5 and 6. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That verse 8 in Psalm 103 that David wrote is not his own genius. It's what God said about himself. And he came across it when he was obeying what God told him to do as the king of Israel. Now, how much did David love these words? Flip with me again to Psalm 86. Back to Psalms. Psalm 86, or rather, um, yes, Psalm 86, page 477. And as you turn the pages, look again, Psalm 86, verse 15. And look at, real quick, look at the, the subscription. Who wrote this psalm? A prayer of David. Verse 15, but you, Lord, are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. One more, and then we're done with our scripture run. Go to Psalm 145. Page 508, again, the subscription, a psalm of praise of David. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Do you see what happened to David? You see what happened to him? All my saints in the room, has that ever happened to you? That ever happened to you? You're reading your Bible you're loving your Lord, you're crushing on Jesus, you read a verse, you're like, oh my goodness, that's on Facebook, that's on Twitter, that's on my Instagram, everybody gotta hear it. You're texting your friends, like cryptic texts, like, bless God, they hit you back, like, oh, what happened? <laughs> right? Because you're taken up with God and you want everybody to hear it. And here is proper praise. Here's proper praise. Proper praise is when we as Christians say about God what he only says about himself. He was the one who said, I am the Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And David, by meditating on his word, came to the same conclusion by experience. He said, oh, he is the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's what David saw. He saw God for who God is, and he was transformed by it completely. Now, if you don't make your way back to verse 8 in Psalm 103, it's on the board. And I want to show you something. What David saw is he saw that God is love. And if you look at those verses, this verse here, it doesn't say that explicitly. It says that he's compassionate or rather merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. But all these things, all these attributes of God, all of them, his mercy, his grace, his long-suffering, his kindness, all these things flow from God's love, his being love. Now, here's the great difficulty that we face. Many of you guys are parents in the room. And unfortunately, sadly, as parents, you run the risk of this reality. If you as a parent love God with all your heart and soul and strength, 
and you raise your children in the fear of the Lord, there is a good chance that your children may grow up to despise you. Why? They might grow up to despise you because you love God and they might not. And as you stand with God in allegiance, if they don't stand with God in allegiance, they won't be with you. And every parent dreams of one day their child getting older, coming through the door after their first semester of college and saying something like, Mom, you're always right. I don't know why I ever doubted you. You're the best mom ever. Right? That's the dream. That's the dream. That's the dream. You can't even lie. That's the dream. But that might not come. Because if you're a parent who sides on the things of God and you define love the way that uh, love is supposed to be defined, which is God, and your child doesn't side that way, you're in trouble. Now, why am I mentioning this? I'm mentioning this because when your child comes to you and you say, and, and, and they don't like the way that you raise them, you'll say, I loved you. And they'll say to you, no, you didn't. And you'll have this disagreement about love. And not to ever throw verses on people, but at that point in time, you can humbly say, my child, God is love. And as much as I gave you God, I gave you love. But as long as the world doesn't agree with that, as long as the world doesn't agree that God is love, the world doesn't know love. The world can't comprehend love. And the world doesn't understand that these attributes of God flow from love. What is grace? Grace is the love of God given to you freely. What is mercy? Mercy is the love of God given to you freely when you're miserable. What is long-suffering? The love of God given to you freely when you're miserable in sin for a long time. Do you see? They all just flow from love. They come down from love. These things all stem from love. David sees this. He understands it. He holds on to it. But now we run into an issue with this psalm. Here's the issue. Now, some of you may be inclined to think David is making an issue. I promise I'm not making an issue. I will show you that is this issue, quote-unquote, is completely textual. Here's the issue. You're telling me that God is gracious, that he's compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. Right, David? This is what you believe your God to be? I say, yes. And they'll say this. They say, look, so then why does he send people to hell? If he loves people, why he send people to hell? Hmm? That's the question. Why? Why are you going to send somebody to hell then? So you mean to tell me that you love somebody, but you're okay to be separate from them for all eternity? Who's this love for? That's the question. Who is this love for? I'm going to answer this question plainly, and then I'll unpack it. This love is only for those who fear him. I'll say it again. It sounds like a very dangerous statement. His love is only for those who fear him. Now, before you come get me, just look down in your Bible again. Before you run at me, look at Psalm 103 one more time. Look at how many times he repeats this. Start in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for everyone. No. So great is his love for those who fear him. Verse 13. As, fa- as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on everybody. No, on those who 
fear him. Verse 17, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's loves with those who live, breathe, no, fear him. And then verse 18, those same words in just more expansive language, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Man. Now listen, I didn't write the Bible. My job as a child of God called as a minister is to unpack its truth. This is what the Bible said. Now, just because this is what the Bible says, that doesn't mean it doesn't require some wisdom when you compare it with other scripture. So let's take these truths and weigh it in the balance of scripture. When we ask the question, who is this incredible love of God for? In one hand, for all of men. On the other hand, only for his children. I'll explain. On one hand, there's something called God's universal love. Guys, when the sun came up, it didn't just come up on Christians. It came up on everybody. And when it rains in your town, it rains for the good and the wicked. This is God's universal love. And then there is God's common love. For all you saints in the room, when you became a Christian, did you become a genius? Did you become top in your class? (laughs) Nah, don't lie to me. (laughs) You saying? Now, when you became a Christian and God lavished you with his love, you didn't become top of your class. Somebody else was top in your class, and they, they, maybe they weren't a Christian. Now, that person's intelligence is a gift from God. This is God's common love. He gives a better sense of what's moral to people. Some, some, so you meet some Christians who, who are, are Christians, they're in Christ, but their sense of morality isn't as sharp as even some non-Christians. Why is that? What's that difference? You'll sometimes meet two parents who have a genius child. And if you ask those parents, man, how's your child so smart? They'll look at one another. We don't know. (laughs) That's just God's grace. That's just his love to give intelligence to others. But then there's this other love. It's the love of the elect. And this is what it is. It encompasses the previous two. It takes the common love, the rain that falls on all men, And it takes the natural giftings, the the moral understanding and the intellect. But it takes all those things and does what? It gives them the power to save. Election, redemption, sanctification, justification. These things that approve us before God, they're not for everybody. They're for some people. And that is the love of the elect a special love and a particular love. It's particular. It's not for everybody. I'll give you one little small example. John chapter 2, you don't have to flip there. But what does Jesus do? The wedding of, in Cana of Galilee, he turns water into wine. Jesus turns water into wine. It's so incredible. It's so amazing. Everybody's drinking, water, everybody's drinking this wonderful wine. And the attendant comes to the bridegroom and he says, every man serves the good wine first. But you, after the people have drunk, have, some, have given the better wine. But verse 11 says something incredible. It says that this miracle that Jesus did, his disciples saw, and it caused them to believe. But guys, the disciples weren't the only people who saw that. It was something special. It was the same gift from God that when it hit certain people's hearts was completely different. You never driving in your car 
with some non-believer. Maybe your kids don't believe, or maybe you're the parent that doesn't believe, and your kid who's saved in the back saying, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and you can't think, turn this K-love off. <laughs> What's the difference? God gave the same song to both of you, <laughs> but it's doing something special for little Austin. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You see Who is this love for? It's for those who fear him. Now, what is this fear? Some people want to say fear is just belief in God, and it is, but verse 18 defines fear wonderfully. Verse 18 says, fear is to keep God's covenant and to remember his precepts. Now, listen, when you talk about the word fear, fear God, or someone's being blameless. We often have issue because we know as believers that we're not perfect, that we're sinful. But it's like your doctor telling you you're healthy. When your doctor says you're healthy, she doesn't know that you had General Sal's chicken last night. Doesn't know that. But she's saying you got a clean bill of health. Or when you say that Michael Phelps is a swimmer, you're not saying that Michael Phelps swims all day, all night. You're saying that the general tenor of his life is that he swims. And the general tenor of our Christian experience is that we fear him. And in fearing him, he pours down lavish grace on us. Now I'm about to get in trouble again. This sounds like works righteousness, but it's not. Listen carefully. If you look at a verse like verse 17, it says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's loves with those who fear him. Now, the way we think, we think, okay, if I want God's love to be on me, I should fear him, and then when I fear him, he'll, he'll love me. No, that's not exactly how it works. Because the fear is God's grace to begin with. The fear is God's grace. If you fear God, it's because he put the fear in you. That's why David says in Psalm 86, he, this is his prayer. He says, God, unite my heart so that I may what? Fear your name. God's grace starts the fear, and the fear produces more of God's grace on your life. Now, again, that might get me in trouble, but listen to the system well. If God graces you with fear, if God does a work in your heart, he's going to love it because it's perfect and it's beautiful and it's righteous and it's good and he'll continue to bless his own work. Again, it's like somebody who makes a wonderful painting, a beautiful painting that earns him millions of dollars. He will praise his own painting. And when he praises his own painting, he's not giving some distinct abstract love to the painting. He's praising himself for the fact that he painted it. Christian, God painted you. He made you. And so when he lavishes you with love and he lavishes you with more grace and more mercy because you're obedient, it's only because he put that in you to begin with. That's the only reason. It should never move you to pride. It should never move you to boast. But it should move you to great thankfulness in the cross of Christ. Now, with all that I'm saying... There's a verse that puts all of this perfectly. One more scripture run. Can you go with me to Matthew chapter 13? This is a strange verse that hopefully now will make tons of sense 
to everyone here. If you're in Matthew chapter 13, I'll give some context. Jesus gives the parable of the soils. You know, this farmer goes out and he casts seed, but only one of them ends up being fruitful. But when Jesus says this parable to the crowd, the crowd doesn't understand. And his disciples say, Jesus, why don't you just speak plainly to them so that they can understand? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 12. Or rather, let's start in verse 11. He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Again, verse 12, whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now, remember what I said to you about universal love and common love? Isn't it true that now God gives rain and he gives intelligence to all men, whether they believe or not? But there will be one day where God will take even that away. But for us Christians who have the power and the grace of God's electing love, we will forever have his love. And the little that we do have now, he'll give us more of it later. That's what Jesus means by that passage. That is the wonderful privilege of a Christian and as David sees that, and as he marvels in that, he's inclined to say these words, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Now, all of that that I've said, all that I've just said in my heart has only been preparatory work for this next and final point. Listen to this. Don't we realize, all my saints in the room, how utterly sinful we are? Don't you see how despite the fact that God has called you, you still sin? You see, Apostle Paul, when he was called to God, he says something very interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says this. He says, I acted in ignorance. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know. He truly believed. Apostle Paul truly believed that Jesus was a heretic. Apostle Paul truly believed that everybody who followed Jesus was wrong. And he thought that he was honoring God. And he said that he did it in ignorance. Christians, when we sin, we can't say that. When we sin, we know full well that we're sinning against love and that we're sinning against light. Isn't it true sometimes before you click to the website you're not supposed to click to, before you send a text that you're not supposed to send, before you say the words that you're not supposed to say, all of a sudden that verse comes to mind? that verse or that ability to not do the sin that you're going to do, but you override system, override, and you do it anyway? I'm not the only one. I can't be the only one who's been there. You may have been there this morning. If you're a Christian, you know exactly what this experience is. The Christian sins against more light and more love than anyone else. We sin against more light more love, more tender mercies than anyone else. 
and yet we're covered by the blood of Christ. So what do you say to your non-believing friends? Where do you tell them to look when they're discouraged and they get the sense that they can't come before God? You can tell them this. My friend, I have sinned against more love than you have. I have sinned against more light than you have, and he has not let me go. You can tell your friend that this God, Yahweh, is a God who pardons the iniquities, not of the world, but of his own people. Isn't it consistent with a mother and their, ch- and their child? My friends, guys, the other day, one of our blessed staff members has two lovely children, and every time they come into the office, they are like angels. I come into the office where they're sitting and doing their work. This was early August, like August 3rd. I come in, and this girl is building a diorama. I said, what are you doing it for? She says, for school. I said, you're in summer school? She says, no. I said, hmm. (laughs) I turned to the mother. I said, I'm not understanding. The mother said, yeah, she's doing it for school. That starts in September. I said, my goodness, this child is a saint. And when I went to that mom and I said, I said, I said, your kids are so good. She gave me the classic parent face. You know when your kid gets complimented in public and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you, because you, really, you really know what they're like in private. You see, your kids are pleasant in public because they fear you. <laughs> your kids are pleasant in public because they want other people to like them. But when your kids are at home, you really know what they're like. You know why? Because they know that you won't abandon them. They know you're mine through thick and thin until you're 18. No, you're mine. (laughs) You're mine. They know you're mine, and I won't let you go. And your hope as parents is that that steadfast love will change them. You, You imagine that if you hold out long enough, it'll change them. That's your hope. That's your prayer. And it is the same way with God. He says, I adopted you, and my love is so powerful, it will change you. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24. It says something of these, of these words. It says, And I, the Lord, will put a new heart in them and take out their heart of stone. And I will sprinkle clean water on them, so that they will what? Obey my precepts. It is the love and the power of God that gives us the ability. It is the grace of God that gives us the ability to obey God. And when we obey God, he gives us more grace, more mercy, more love, more compassion. Grace on top of grace on top of grace. So what is our call to the world? Our call to the world is simply this. We can tell somebody, read Psalm 103 and think of Jesus. Jesus, the true son of David. And remember that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who has secured our adoption with Christ that allows us not only to fear God, but when we sin, to go back to fearing God. Saints, God is love. He is love, but only we know the height, depth, breadth, and length of it. Our obedience will show it to the world, and even our sin will show it to the world. When on that last day, we're standing in front of him in the great assembly, and our coworker, who we used to sin with, sees us enter into his presence, and our coworker says, him? Him? 
How does he get in? Me and him did the same thing. We did it together. And God says, wait, him? I don't see him. I see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, have your will and have your way. Convince all souls in this congregation, every single one of them, of who you are. You are a God of love. And out of your love flows grace and compassion and long-suffering and kindness. But that love is best seen only in your children. And so help us as your children to remember that, Lord God, to proclaim that message to a dying world, that we are the tender objects of God's love, and for that reason, we give God praise from our inmost being, because we have seen you as you truly are, a God of love. In Jesus' blood we pray, amen.